So we're just gonna do a really quick review, and there's some really good stuff I want to cover tonight. And so there's anyway, it's of course the one night where I've got more than I would normally do for late, but that's all right. We'll get it done. If we stop kind of when we need to stop, then we'll add it on until next week. Very brief review from last week. We touched on Solomon, who was the second son of David and Bathsheba, uh, the wisest and richest man who ever lived. And uh, the key events with Solomon, his 40-year reign, just like his father David and Saul before David, they each had a 40-year reign. And the second key event with Solomon was um, the building, the construction of the temple. And David wanted to build it, but that was not to be. Um, and God uh, gave that honor and responsibility to Solomon. And so he constructs this temple. And finally, Israel, after all this time in the promised land, has a permanent structure where they can all come and worship the one true God. The key relationship with Solomon was women. It says enough right there, doesn't it? The pagan wives and concubines that Solomon allowed to become part of his household turned his heart away from the one true God, turned him toward false gods, and his failure to be a spiritual leader at the home resulted in spiritual failure of the nation. So the man that started out so promising as a king, uh, so wise, had pretty much everything he could possibly have, was the last king that was in place before the, the, um, the kingdom, the nation Israel, just fractures right in two. And so from there we move to the kings of Israel and Judah, and Israel, shortly after Solomon's reign, Israel splits into two kingdoms. The northernmost ten tribes become Israel. They have their own capital, Samaria. They um, have their own king. They have their own king, Jeroboam. I don't want to try, rely on my memory. Jeroboam and Rehoboam sound a lot alike. And they are captured eventually by Assyria in 722 B.C. The southern two most tribes become known as Judah. And their capital was Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the capital of Israel. Their first king was Rehoboam, and they were captured by Babylon in 586 B.C. So we go through this time period where there are all these kings of Israel and Judah. The key event, we just picked one. Uzziah was one of the more faithful kings of Judah, and he reigned for 52 years. And right up until the very end of his life, God blessed him. He followed the Lord and the law. Um, and the key relationship was that God basically evaluates these kings on a moral standard. If they follow him, if they're obedient, they follow the law, then many times their kingdom is, ble is blessed and their reign is extended. If that is not the case, then their reign is shortened and they're usually captured by an enemy. So from there, we move to an exciting group of individuals in the Old Testament. I love the prophets because they're quirky and they're kind of in your face and they don't care about the cultural norms these were the people that just kind of swam upstream uh, i just think it would be so amazing to be used by god to be literally god's mouthpiece a brief recap of where we are in israel's history the israelites have made it into canaan under the leadership of joshua shortly thereafter god institutes the period of judges and we have all these judges that come and go military civil religious leaders that god set up to not only defend the Israelites against enemies, but also to lead them to obedience, to bring them back to the Lord, to kind of shore up bad behavior and disobedience. Israel rejects the system of the judges, demands a king over and over, and God gives them what they want. The monarchy begins. Saul is the first king for 40 years, then David for 40 years, then Solomon for 40 years. 
After that, kingdom splits into two. All these kings of Israel and Judah come and go. During the time of the monarchy, pretty much when the kings began, up until the captivities, remember that, that slide I just showed, the northern kingdom is captured eventually by Assyria, the southern kingdom by Babylon. During the monarchy and the captivities, we see these prophets being used more and more by God to deliver his message. This is direct revelation from God. Do we still have direct revelation from God today? No, because it's all, everything that we need from God, our message from God, is included in the canon of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation is our direct revelation from God. We don't need someone to stand up in the middle of downtown Fuquay and say, Oh, a message from the Lord. If they say that, then we might want to question that, because it, it's in God's Word. Obviously, the canon of Scripture was not completed during this time, and this is how God delivered his message to his people. We already met the first prophet. Who was the very first prophet of the Old Testament? Somebody who spoke to God face to face and then delivered the message to the Israelites. Moses, amazing, amazing man, got to go up on a mountain and talk to God over and over. Come down, he was all glistening and shiny and, you know, suntan, I don't know. But he, like, he would be physically different when he communed with God, delivered the message. He was the very first one. How in the world would Israel know that God was going to use prophets? How would they know they could trust these individuals? Well, the amazing thing is that way back in the wilderness, when the Israelites were still under the direction of Moses, God delivers to Moses, the first prophet, a message that says, Hey, I'm going to use prophets to talk to my people, which I think is kind of like ironic. Who has Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22? Thank you. Okay, so this is Moses speaking, and basically this passage gives out the details of what a prophet was supposed to do, who they were supposed to be, how the Israelites could know and, and trust the message, and how they could verify that it was really coming from God, and then what their response was to be. Um, so one of the very first phrases that Kitty read was, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from among your countrymen, listen to him. So several key points, starting with that phrase about these prophets. The first is the prophet would be an Israelite. It says, I'll raise up from among you, from among your countrymen. So it's not going to be some Amorite or Hittite or Perizzite or whatever. It's going to be a an Israelite. So the prophet would be an Israelite, one from among God's chosen people. God, secondly, would deliver his message to them. This would be a direct, it's, it's, it's not going, you know, it's not like the old game telephone where God tells one and then they tell somebody. This is God directly to this prophet, the prophet to the nation Israel. So God delivers his message. The prophet, so they're an Israelite, God delivers his message. The prophet is required to speak all of God's words. He can't just deliver part of the message or the parts that he likes or, um, you know, add to, take away, just the words, but all of the words that God gives this individual. The prophets, I know I'm talking fast, were to be obeyed as if God himself were speaking this, these words, which he was through this individual, but the prophet's words were to be taken as coming directly from God. And if what was prophesied did not come true, it was not from God. So the Israelites could test what these prophets say, 
said, and if it came to pass, then it was from God. If it did not, then they were to disregard it. And I love the way that ends. If the, the, um, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. And the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So there were stipulations on behalf of the, the nation Israel on how they were to respond and on the prophets themselves. So these people weren't just getting up willy-nilly saying, God has designated me as a prophet. This is what I think I want to tell you. This is coming directly from God. That's a lot of responsibility. And so we meet the prophets. And there are major prophets and minor prophets. And the, the designation major and minor has to do with the length of the writing and the scope, like basically the target audience. So the major prophets weren't necessarily more important or more valuable or higher rank. They just had longer writings and a wider scope. And so the major prophets were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And, you know, I mean, you can look at the Old Testament pretty much and look at the books of the prophets and figure out the four largest ones. The minor prophets are sometimes referred to as the Twelve, and it's pretty much all the rest. I was going to say, did I write them out? No, I just wrote a few of them down. But it's uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So the Twelve. In addition to the major prophets and the minor prophets, there were plenty of other prophets that came and went that didn't write books, that didn't have books named after them, didn't write weren't authors, and we're going to talk about at least one of those uh, tonight. And so keep in mind, the prophets were not just limited to those that had a book in the Bible with their name on it. Some have posited that the books of the prophets are some of the least studied books of the Bible. Why do you think that is? Do you agree with that? Why, if, if so, why or why not? Do you agree with that statement? Some of them are pretty tough to read. Any other thoughts? Why? I would I would say that if for a lot of folks, it's an interpretation issue. There's a fear of misinterpretation. You know, this was spoken to Israel. Does it? How do I extrapolate? Does it apply to us today? And we know that all scripture can be applied to us today, but there are specific things that might have been directed, obviously, just to the nation of Israel. And so I think interpretation is a huge issue. I think it's kind of funny, not haha funny, but ironic that at this particular time, when I'm sharing this, our pastor is actually teaching Malachi on a Sunday morning, because that's not something you would typically hear. And just as a believer, it's much easier for me to open the Psalms and be encouraged right away. Or, you know, open an epistle, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, that to me is easily understood, easily applicable, but, you know, reading Joel... Or Hosea, you know, it's, it just takes, I think, a little more brain power probably in study and, you know, use of commentaries and such. So I would say that as a whole, these books are probably a little bit less studied. But keep in mind, much of what, much truth about Jesus and about God's plan for mankind can be found in these prophets. We read about Christ's birth in Isaiah and Micah. We learn of Christ's atoning sacrifice in Isaiah. We learn of Christ's return in Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. And we learn of God's holiness, his wrath, his grace, and his mercy in all of the major and minor prophets. So I just kind of keep that as a, a word of encouragement to not neglect these books of the Old Testament in your own personal Bible study. 
For the key events, pretty much like I've done with some of the other larger groups, I basically just picked three to touch on briefly. Daniel, I do not claim to be a an expert by any stretch under in uh, prophecy or in future prophecy in times, but I'll just kind of throw this out. Daniel has a 70 weeks prophecy. You can study about that in the book of Daniel. And the 70 weeks prophecy is basically literally means 70 periods of seven. Most Bible scholars believe that the first 69 weeks of this 70 weeks prophecy has already taken place. And that the last week, that last seven, that, that, that 70th period of seven is the seven year tribulation period, which is still yet to come. And we are hanging out between week 69 and week 70. And so how interesting to think that, you know, what Daniel wrote about, 90% of that has already taken place. And we're just waiting for the last little bit of that to come to pass. The second one of these, I just love, oh, don't hang this a second. Do I have a little thing in your, um, should I put a handout in your, turn to the next page. Should I put a handout in there on Daniel? I may or may not have. I cannot remember if I did. Did I not? Did, did I put one in? No, no, no. It, I, sometime, I think I might have done it last year. I may try to find that. Don't you? If it was in there, it'd be right after the prophet page. There's a. Um, I'll try to find it. It's one that I think my dad did in seminary, and it basically it's a diagram of the seventy weeks prophecy. Way over my head, because um, I haven't studied it in depthly. Obviously, the point of this is to kind of you know hop, skip, and jump through scripture. But I'll try to get a copy of that and bring it next week because it's really if it's something you're interested in, it's a really it's a great outline to kind of go from. So I couldn't remember if I put that in there or not. From the seventy weeks prophecy of Daniel, we move to Elijah. Elijah, I love Elijah. He's one of these trailblazing kind of guys. Doesn't care what everybody else thinks. You know, just does his own thing. Y'all all know the story about Elijah and the um, big showdown on Mount Carmel. At this particular time, king of Israel is Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel. And um, I'm being facetious, obviously. And so God instructs Elijah to challenge the prophets of Baal. So Elijah goes to Ahab and says, I want to challenge 450 prophets of Baal that, that are Ahab's prophets, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are, Je that's Jezebel's God. So Jezebel's God is Asherah. She's got 400 prophets that kind of help her. And then uh, Ahab's got 450 of Baal. He wanted to challenge all of them. Jezebel did not want to put her God to the test. So she declined this challenge. So up to Mount Carmel they go. Do you understand the fact that the king and queen of Israel are enemies of the prophet of God? That's how far we've come in Israel's history. Ahab and Jezebel are enemies of Elijah. Not a good scene. Uh, and therefore, really, enemies of the one true God. So we have up on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet of God. I, if you want great drama, go back and read this entire story. We're going to read a passage up from it in just a second. So here's the scene. Take two big oxen, chop them up. One ox goes on one um, altar, the other ox goes on the other altar. Prophets of Baal get to go first. They cry out from morning until noon. Around lunchtime, Elijah starts mocking them because it's getting kind of desperate. Um, they continue to cry out until evening time. Verse 29 of 1 Kings says, When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. 
just love that. Crickets. Um, and so, um, you know, nothing's happening. They've hollered and hooted and danced and sliced and, you know, cut themselves and done whatever they could for an entire day, and nothing has happened. Elijah's turn, but Elijah wants to make sure that God gets the glory. And so before he calls on Almighty God, he douses his altar, his altar with four pitchers of water, full of water, three separate times. Digs a trench, four pitchers dumped three times. This thing is soaking wet, dripping down the sides, a trench full. And then the one prophet of God makes one single prayer. He's not praying all day, all night, cutting himself, screaming, yelling, hooting, and hollering. One prayer. Who has 1 Kings 18? And you got to read this with feeling. Okay, come on, Curtis. Uh, 36 to 40. I want to draw my hair. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah called and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also kicked up the water, <clears throat> licked up the water in, in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and surprised. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. Seize them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. Thank you. One prayer. Let and, and his prayer is not make me look good or I really want to show these people up. His prayer is answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Immediately fire comes down, he consumes the burnt offering, he consumes the wood, the stones, the dirt, and sucks up the water. And so when God shows up, he shows up in a big way. And he wanted to make sure that nobody in that crowd missed who answered that prayer? So I just love that scene. I kind of wish the Lord would still do stuff like that today, but obviously he does not feel that is, you know, something he needs to do right now, but I just think it would have been fun to be in there. But anyway, um, and of course the prophets of Baal, you know, probably didn't think that was such a great scenario. Uh, they lost their lives that day. So that is the kind of thing that these prophets were doing. In addition to writing books, obviously, facing sin head-on, without compromise, without apology, and giving God the glory. And then lastly, uh, uh, Nehemiah. You remember we had talked about last week that southern kingdom, those last two, uh, or those southern two most uh, tribes, Judah, were captured by Babylon in 586 B.C. About 50 years later, Persia conquers Babylon. So now Persia's in charge, and under Cyrus, uh, Cyrus decides, you know what, I'm going to let these, these Israelites go back to Jerusalem and kind of rebuild and restore what has been destroyed and taken away. So uh, years later, um, the Israelites start to kind of come back and to Jerusalem, and under the direction of Ezra, does anybody know what Ezra was? He wasn't a prophet. Anybody know what he was? Uh, he Yeah, no, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Ezra was two hit, a scribe and a priest. That's exactly right. He was a direct revelation, I mean, revelation, a direct uh, descendant of Aaron. He was a priest and a scribe, so he oversaw rebuilding the temple. And then Nehemiah, his sort of his cohort around that time, was the prophet who oversaw the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. So um, 
uh, a really exciting time in Israel's history when they were able to come back and start to restore what had been taken away. The key relationship here is just not, it's one of these other ones that we keep kind of coming back to that aren't all that fun, justice and judgment. We see here over and over during the, the period of the prophets that God is just. He cannot tolerate sin, and he is the impartial judge of it, and he does truly judge sin. He doesn't wink at it or gloss over it. He judges sin, and he also brings about judgment, consequences that come as a result of Israel's sin. The key relation, I mean, the uh, the key uh, themes that you see over and over and over again through the prophets, these are pretty vague, but we see these over and over they preached faithfulness. They wanted the Israelites to come back to God and to remain faithful. They confronted sin, just like Elijah. Boy, he didn't, he didn't mince words. He was head on confronting sin. They warned of coming judgment, yet they offered hope. There was always a way of salvation. Um, so it wasn't all doom and gloom, hellfire and brimstone. There was always a way for, them, for the Israelites to be restored to God. These, obviously, were not the most popular people in Israel. We're not winning any popularity contest. So, those are the prophets. We come to this kind of unusual spot in our study between the Old and New Testaments called the Silent Years. The Silent Years is kind of a misnomer. It doesn't mean that nothing happened and no one spoke and no history took place. It just means that nothing was, that God did not communicate any message to his people that needed to, that he wanted included in the canon of scripture during this 400 year time period. So it does not mean that nothing happened, it just means that nothing was included in scripture during this time period. So a little bit of history, what was going on in the world specifically with Israel during this time? Palestine or the nation Israel, Canaan, the promised land, whatever you want to call that piece of geography, was conquered by numerous individuals. Remember, it was there were captivities where Israel and Judah were captive. They gradually made their way back, but during this time, the Persians, the Syrians, Seleucids, Maccabees, and ultimately the Romans conquer, take over Israel, that, that piece of geography. And so those, those uh, nations are in power for periods of time. Rome was at power at the time of Christ. We all know this. And Herod, we're going to talk about the Herods really quickly in just a minute, but Herod, during this time period, rebuilt or expanded the temple around 200 B.C. Now, this, this is where I'm going to take this little jaunt here. And I'm going to make this really quick because all of this is in your notes. Um, I did this last year, and I think folks found it relatively helpful. When, when we talk about Herod, there's so many daggum Herods in the Bible. I get confused. I wasn't sure which Herod was which. There's a Herod... When Jesus is a baby, there's a Herod. When Jesus was being tried, there are other Herods mentioned during Paul's ministry. And so who are these individuals? So I'm just going to touch very briefly, basically, on the name and one or two little tidbits about these individuals. The first, there are four main Herods of the Bible. The first Herod was Herod the Great. He was appointed a procurator of Judea by Julius Caesar. And he bore the titles, when you hear Herod the King, King of Judea, or Herod the Great. This was this particular Herod. He was the Herod who renovated the temple. If you think about the temples, just keep in mind, Solomon built the first temple. When Babylon took over Israel, the temple was destroyed around 586, or a little bit after that, B.C. When, uh, when the Persians took over Babylon and let the, the Israelites come back, Ezra 
um, oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. That was considered the second temple. When Herod came along around 20 BC, he was basically adding on. He was adding his flair, his his glamour, his you know bling bling to the second temple. He considered this basically an add-on. It wasn't an additional or a brand new temple. Um, so this is the guy who was in power when Jesus was born. This is the Herod who met with the Magi, who said, hey, when you go see that baby, come tell me all about it. And then also wanted to kill or put a, issued the proclamation to kill the baby boys in an effort to extinguish this newborn king. So this is the Herod that wanted to eradicate Jesus early in Jesus' life. Second Herod was Herod Antipas. He was son of Herod the Great. Um, his mom was a Samaritan. Just a real quick word about the Samaritans. What do, we, what do we know Samaritans are called by the Israelites? What do they consider them to be? Half-breeds. They were, the Samaritans were part Jewish from Ephraim and Manasseh tribes, that had intermarried with Gentiles after the Assyrian captivity, and so they were considered half-breeds. So Herod was, he his father was Herod the Great, this Herod Antipas, and his mom was Samaritan. He married Herodias. Was Herodias supposed to be his wife? Whose wife was she? His half-brother Philip's wife. So he was an adulterer. He basically swiped his brother, his half-brother Philip's wife, and this guy was responsible for John the Baptist's death. We'll learn about that in just a minute or two. And this was also the Herod that tried Jesus. Ultimately, he tried Jesus. He and his soldiers mocked Jesus, then returned Jesus to Pilate, basically to be turned over to um, crucifixion. The last two Herods, I mean, none of these guys were, uh, you know, somebody you'd want to have over for dinner. Herod Agrippa dethroned Herod Antipas, this is Herod Agrippa I, he killed James the Apostle, the brother of John, and he had Peter arrested, and had this angel not delivered Peter from the prison of Herod Agrippa, he probably would have been put to death as well. So this guy was no um, champ. And then Herod Agrippa II, of all of these guys, was probably the best. He was probably the most sympathetic to Christianity, and... He was put in charge of the north, uh, the region north of Judea, and during one of the trials of Paul, he said to the Apostle Paul, you have almost persuaded me to become a Christian. So he didn't say, I'm going to become a Christian, but he said, you almost persuaded me. So this guy was probably the better of the four, but the first three, not, not so great. So that's like a real down and dirty little summary of the Herods. So back to the silent years, this is the very first Herod, Herod the Great, who renovates the temple. The key events, numerous outside influences result in Jewish um, groups and little sects being formed. This is when we start to see the rise of Pharisees and Sadducees and, and all these little um, groups and, and sort of offshoots of Judaism. And then the key relationship, as I said before, no direct revelation. Oh, go back to the key event. The Apocrypha was written during this time and the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And there are, there are people who believe that the Apocrypha, those books that were written, are equal to Scripture. We believe that our Scripture is Genesis to Revelation and not the Apocryphal books, Maccabees and all those. I don't know all of them. Um, some folks may have read them just for personal study. I don't know. But that's when these books were read, uh, were written, and but not included in what was to be considered inspired scripture. 
want to make sure I say that right. And again, no direct revelation took place from God that should have been, that needed to be included in Scripture during this time. So that's a whole lot of history really fast. It's starting to get glazed looks. Are y'all okay? Hang in. Do you need to do a little jumping jacks or something? Alrighty. So we close the, the Old Testament out with the prophets. We have this silent period. And then we have the beginning of the New Testament. And as you will see really quickly, like we're going to spend about three weeks in the New Testament when we spent weeks and weeks and weeks in the Old Testament. Um, and we really just barely hit the highlights in the New Testament. But I just kind of throw these maps up here so you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. Judea, we hear, so Judah and Israel... That's a little bit different than Judea. We hear a lot once we kind of get to the life of Christ about Judea. So that I put this up here so you can kind of see that area. We have Samaria up here, the Samaritans, the half-breeds. The Idumeans down here were um, uh, descendants of Esau in Dead Sea. So in a lot of these cities around here are the cities that we see Jesus ministering in. So just to kind of put that into perspective a little bit, much of Jesus' life was spent in the region of Judea. Um, hang on a second, there's something else I was going to say about... Um, he was born in Bethlehem, obviously. Let's see if I can find Bethlehem on there. But, uh, I just found it. Oh, so he's born in Bethlehem, and then, like I said, much of his ministry took place here. Um, he did, you know, travel around, but a lot of it was centered kind of right in that one little spot. So that kind of puts a little... Did I have that in your notes? I do have that. Yeah, Those maps, good. Okay. So I wanted to show that just to kind of... Because some of this affects John the Baptist as well as Jesus, so I put that map in between the two. Okay. So we are, our first person in the New Testament that we encounter tonight is John the Baptist. And you all know that he was Jesus' cousin. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, and Elizabeth, John's mother, were first cousins. He, too, was a Nazarite. And do you all remember those three things that the Nazarites couldn't do? Anybody remember? Couldn't cut their hair. Yeah, no, no wine or strong drink. And they couldn't touch a corpse. That's right. You guys are so good. Just like Moses we talked about was the first prophet, John the Baptist was the last prophet. So between Moses and John the Baptist, we have those prophets kind of couched in between those. John the Baptist embodied the message of the minor, the major and minor prophets. He basically summed up what the prophets had been trying to communicate to Israel all these years. And his job, the key event here, was to be the forerunner of Christ. Listen to the prophecy from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, from the prophets, about this forerunner of Jesus. Who has Isaiah 40, verse 3? A voice calling, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Thank you. So this is Isaiah prophesying about one who will come before the Messiah and make the way ready. And then listen to John the Baptist's message and his own words about his purpose. Who has John 1, 19 to 23? Now this is, is a tes tes testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then, then they said to him, Who are you? 
that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Isn't that amazing? This man knows his purpose. He knows his God-given job, and he does not take any glory for himself. I love this. When he when he's asked by these um, these uh, leaders of Israel, who who are you? He doesn't. He, I just like the way he he just. Are you this? Nope. Are you that? Nope. Uh, he, he's not. Well, sit down and let me tell you who I am. I am the forerunner of Jesus. Just so. You, did you did you write that down? John the Baptist. I mean, he does not desire to bring any glory to himself. He. The first thing out of his mouth is, "I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ." I'm not Elijah. The, a lot of um, Bible expositors say or, or feel like when he says, are you the prophet? He wasn't Moses. He wasn't Elijah. He was the forerunner. And he knows his Bible. He knows Isaiah and what Isaiah said about him. That's, that's crazy. I mean, I just think that's amazing. So he knew his job. And then who's got Matthew 3, 1 to 2? In those days, John the Baptist came fishing in the desert to Isaiah. Thank you. So not only does he know from Isaiah what has been prophesied about him, but he says, I am the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But then Matthew tells us he's in the wilderness crying. And anyway, obviously this man knows what he's supposed to do. Just a reminder to me, and uh, you know, I try to make applications as we go along too, but um, I as a believer want to know what God has put in place for me to do, and then I just want to be obedient. And I don't necessarily want to be, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing. I want to just reflect Jesus. That's what John the Baptist did. Key relationships for John the Baptist. This is where the next couple of, of individuals that we meet, I really want you to see this theme because there is a theme building that starts with John the Baptist, continues with Jesus, and continues with Stephen. And it is so important. The kingdom of heaven is offered to the nation Israel. The Messiah is coming. John the Baptist is doing his best to get Israel ready for the Messiah to say, wake up, repent, return to the Lord, because your Messiah is on the way. Yet, Israel does not accept this offer, and they instead see that John the Baptist is put to death. We're going to talk about how that happens in a minute. And they reject the idea of the kingdom of, ha of heaven coming to them right now. Who has uh, Matthew 14, 1-12? At that time, here the Hathrach heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. For here had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling me, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to kill me, he feared the crowd, because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on the platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his gifts. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and then reported to Jesus. Thank you. Remember
remember this Herod the Tetrarch, this is Herod Antipas, the second Herod. It, it, I think it's so ironic. So he's heard the news about Jesus. And even though John the Baptist has made it extremely clear who he is and what his role is, there's still confusion. They still don't know who he is or why he's doing this or why, or why he has these powers and these abilities to do the things that he does. So let me put the scene before you. So Herod has taken his, his uh, brother, half-brother Philip's wife, and John the Baptist has, just like these prophets do, confronted sin. He has said to Herod, that is adultery. You had no right to take your brother's wife, and what you are doing is wrong. And for that reason, Herod hated John the Baptist. Now, Herod did not want to kill John the Baptist because he feared what the Jews might do if he just killed him. So the scene before us is Herod has a birthday, and his wife has this lovely daughter, and she comes out to do a dance for Herod at his birthday party. Now this is not a tap dance, and this is not a ballet. This is like a pole dance kind of thing. This is like striptease with the intent of seduction. That is the intent of this, of this scene. And that is exactly what happens. And Herod is so pleased with this dance of his stepdaughter slash niece that he offers her anything up to the kingdom, basically. And having been prompted by her mother ahead of time, who also hates John the Baptist because of his stand against their marriage, uh, she says, when he asks you for whatever it is he offers you, you ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's exactly what she does. And... I love that Herod, although he was grieved, not because he was sad about John the Baptist, but fearing that there might be outcry, he, he commands it because he's made oaths and because of his dinner guests. He doesn't want to look bad in front of his dinner guests. So he has John the Baptist killed, beheaded, rings the head on a platter, and everyone's happy, right? So the idea is John the Baptist came and offered the nation Israel the kingdom of heaven, had Israel accepted, and I, I don't want to overstate God's plan here, but it had Israel accepted, theoretically, the kingdom of heaven could have been ushered in right then. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant could have taken place, but God in his sovereignty obviously knew that was not going to happen, that Israel would reject John the Baptist's message, will eventually reject Jesus as Messiah. Jesus had to come to die. He had to come to be a sacrifice for our sins. But Israel, in their complicitness of um, killing John the Baptist, basically rejects the prophet's message. They reject John the Baptist, and by rejecting John the Baptist, they have rejected the message of all the prophets leading up to now. When the Bible talks about the prophets, whose message usually is, is communicated in the prophets? God the Father, okay? So keep this in mind. The prophets delivered God the Father's message. So Israel has effectively rejected God the Father. There are two more parts of the Trinity yet to come that will be presented to Israel. And sadly, you folks already know their response to those two remaining parts of the Trinity. Does that make sense? Any thoughts, questions? I, I struggle with the whole, like, um, I've done a lot of study on this and, and the idea that Jesus could have ushered in the Davidic covenant right then, could have been the throne sitter, but we've talked about before, that was not his intent with this visit to earth. That will be his intent the second time he comes. But the kingdom of heaven 
Israel had the opportunity to accept right then and there, the Messiah is coming, we better make ourselves ready. They did not do that, and they rejected that offer. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, 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 yes. Not all of Israel. Right, know, right, 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 and, right, you know, right. The leadership, really, yeah. right. And obviously, I mean, at his, you know, the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, I mean, there are those that are grieving and, you know, disciples and followers, but as a nation, as a whole, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of not fair that the whole, you know, well, yeah. Yeah. anyway, you're right, you're right. I decided to Yes, yes. Not every single individual in the nation. One thing I was going to say is, based on what you said, that he could come and uh, it would be fulfilled of his coming earth. What about all the prophecies in the Old Testament? See, that's, yeah, and see, right. And, like, he had to come to be, to be, he had to be our sacrifice. Like, you know, even if he had come, then we would be left without, you know, hope to reconcile to God. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, God and his sovereignty knew that would not happen. But he will come and he will be that throne sitter and he will sit on David's throne. One day future. Alrighty. Thank y'all.